0: So we've been looking, uh, we've been honing in on um, the missionary journeys here in the book of Acts, and we're in our second missionary journey, and last week we uh, looked at uh, Thessalonica and then brought it into Berea. So in Acts chapter 17, Acts chapter 17, and verse number 10. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now, you remember, he had, he had done this before in Thessalonica, got himself in quite a bit of trouble. Um, and still, this was his manner to go to the, to the um, synagogue first. We talked about that last week, and I thought that was a neat discussion. Uh, why was it his manner to go to the synagogue? We um, had some good thoughts there, and I appreciate your feedback. And, uh, and that is a good discussion to have. But then it says in verse number 11, "...these were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily whether those things were so. Therefore, many of them believed also of honorable women, which were Greeks, and of men not a few." And then we see in verse 13 that those, those uh, rabble-rousers from Thessalonica found out about what was going on in Berea, and they came and stirred up the people again. But uh, uh, it's interesting when you consider this idea, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica. The word is literally well-born. We, we, we get that idea that somebody who's well-bred, who's uh, a part of, even in our English, we understand the concept of nobility, nobility. Nobility. Um, and as I look that up, you know, it, the dictionary sees two aspects to that. Number one, social status, okay, the nobility that was just sort of a privileged class. But it also refers to uh, uh, character qualities character qualities and so that person who has the character quality of being noble right? they have good character even if maybe they're not in the nobility they really are they are a part of the nobility in their very character so we understand that idea of being well-born of having uh, characteristics of being the characteristic of being noble but uh, it's literally the word is well-born as it were and he describes the people in Berea this way he says that they were; these were more well-born than those in Thessalonica. And then he gives a description of why he says that. What, what, what stood out about them that made him characterize these believers uh, this way? Well, he says, um, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that, what? There was two things. They received the word with all readiness of mind. Okay, so they listened to what Paul was saying. They were ready. Okay? They were wanting to pick it up. They were, they were eager to learn. And yet, the flip side of that, and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Um, so they not only received what he said, but they didn't, they didn't just go, oh, well, that's cool. Yeah, sure, whatever. Yeah, we'll follow it. We'll, uh, we'll swallow that and just whatever you say. No, they were going to check up on Saul, Paul himself, Why? Because what was Paul doing? As we talked about, um, when he went into a synagogue, he was appealing to people who already had a scriptural basis. These were people who were supposed to be familiar with the Hebrew Old Testament. And so as he's making arguments out of the Hebrew Old Testament, guess what? They have recourse to go back, open the scrolls, and say, well, let me read that again. Is that what he was saying? Is he making a proper application? Is it? Do the scriptures allow for what this man is saying? And they're searching the scriptures whether what he's saying is actually true. And I think this is very, uh, very important. Um, How many times uh, do we, uh, we asked the question um, last week, how many times do we accept a statement without researching the details to determine the validity of the case? Um, You know, how many preachers do that? They'll repeat a story, they'll repeat a... Uh, a saying, maybe they'll even repeat doctrine. Now, you can understand it at a certain point, maybe that they're young. That's what they've been taught. But given time, they need to go back and investigate those things, okay? Not because uh, uh, it's, it's cool and fashionable to, to buck tradition and you know, feel like you know more than your elders, but to research and investigate the things that you've learned to make sure that there is a bib- as, as strong a biblical case as you thought there was, And so, uh, so that that idea of being, and I put it in these words, an investigative journalist, right? That I'm going to look into the details of the case, and then I'm going to report what's actually there. Uh, So that's what he he saw, and he said because of that that these were uh, more noble; they were better born because they had that kind of a mindset. Do we have that perspective on truth and teaching? Number one, that we want to learn, we want to grow. Our ears are open to, to being sharpened, to being deepened, to knowing more and to having a better understanding, and connecting the dots better. And yet at the same time, when somebody says that they're doing that, do we also go back to the source, the source of authority, and say, is that accurate? Is that true the way he's representing it? Um, obviously, we're human. Everybody is human. So they're prone to error, okay, or prone to... Uh, what would we say? Maybe a weakness in communication, right? And so it's the the job of the communicator to find the best way to communicate a truth. And so sometimes maybe someone says something like, um, and, and then you question them on it, and they go, you know, maybe that wasn't the best way to say that what I was saying. Um, let me here's a different, here's a better word, here's a better way to say that. Okay, that's the honing uh, of the of the communicator. But sometimes words can be crafted in such a way that you're like, oh man. That's really great. That's powerful. But then you get to really thinking about it and you go, no, actually, that's not like tremendously biblical. I mean, it's a neat idea. It's a spin off of a biblical idea. It really makes me feel good. But no, I think that was just well crafted, but not necessarily extremely substantive. So um, the idea here that those in Berea were, were thinking, and it's, I, don't, I, I can't even say that who he's talking about are saved people initially you tracking with me? So he went into the synagogue to reason with these people to, to bring them to a point of conversion. But he's saying they had this mindset about them that they would, uh, they would investigate. They would be ready, they would listen, but they would also investigate. They would think critically. Wouldn't it be a fair application to say that training our children to be investigative, to think critically, is a component of good breeding? Right? We want our children to be noble. We want our children to be well bred. Well, what is a part of that? Well, biblically, I think it's teaching them to think, to think critically. Um, and I don't mean to think uh, with a critical spirit necessarily, but to think critically. You understand what I'm saying with critical thinking? Is that we will take somebody's argument, we'll let them say their piece, and then we'll think through it and not just accept it because they're a friend or because it sounds good or. Um, because we don't want to do any thinking ourselves, but to say, um, you know, I appreciate you, but I don't, I don't agree with you. Um, and so I think ch- teaching our children to think critically is, is important. That has to be done carefully, um, I suppose, in how, how you approach it, um, in, in, in uh, who you question and how you question them. But nonetheless, teaching our children to, uh, to be investigative and to think critically. Now notice in verse number 12. So, so we see that they had this quality about them, that they were investigative. But verse 12 says, therefore, many of them believed. Well, therefore what? Well, what's the therefore, therefore? okay. Good, right. Because they searched whether those things were true, because they did some investigation and said, you know what he said is right. I hadn't seen it. Hadn't made that connection, didn't know all those things. But what he says is true because I've investigated, I've researched it, and, and that's the case. And so they believed, okay? That kind of thinking led them to belief, which is good. Therefore, many of them believed also, and then tells of different ones, also of honorable women, which were Greeks, and of men, not a few. So several people believed. And then verse thirteen says, But when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached of Paul at Berea, they came thither also and stirred up the people. And then immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go as it were to the sea, but Silas and Timotheus abode there still. And they that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens. Now later we'll look at a uh, uh, at a map again, so you kind of see these cities and the route Paul was taking. Um, but he says they brought him to Athens, and uh, receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus for to come to him with all speed, they departed. In other words, they, they escorted Paul to Athens. Then Paul said, you know what? I want Silas and Timotheus here with me too. And so the couriers, the, one that, the, the ones that escorted him there, went back to give that message and left then Paul at Athens. And verse number 16 says, now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to to idolatry and that's interesting because obviously as he's traveling he's meeting false religion Uh, he's encountering paganism but Athens was unique in that it was just immersed in idolatry like idols everywhere okay the pantheon it was um, it just is so is so it accurately reflects here um, the text does what, what Paul saw, that the city was wholly given to idolatry. Therefore, what was his response to that? Boy, I see them, I, I see them wrapped up in idolatry. I'm grieved for them, this, this false teaching and the people in darkness and loss. What did he do? Therefore, he disputed in the synagogue with the Jews. Now, that sounds familiar. It's like he's done this before. Routinely, he, he sets about doing the work again. He starts where he's always started, he disputes in the synagogue with the Jews, with the devout persons in the, uh, and with the devout persons, and in the market daily with them that met with him. Okay? Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him, and some said, "What will this babbler say? Other some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods." Because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection, their their curiosity was piqued. Uh, maybe they loved a, the, the a good story of a new God. you know they had a lot of them. And, and if you ever read Greek mythology, uh, it is sort of entertaining. Um, it's interesting to uh, you know, there was, there was uh, plenty of stories. And very, by the way, um, Greek mythology, while it's um, um, while you're speaking of superpowers, as it were. You also—it's all also very human. Do you know what I mean by that? the The characters are very human. Um, in other words, you don't. In, in it seems that in Greek mythology, um, I, I'm not sure that there's any god that's actually almighty, that's impervious to any attack. It's a oh man, this this god was conned by this god. And this god stole this god's daughter. And so this god, you know, judged him and took him to battle and cut off his head. But this god resurrected him again, you know. And it's just this big melee of all these gods who have some power uh, and, like, more power than a human would have, but they have human problems, <laughs> you know. Um, and so it's it's interesting to read. But uh, apparently their, their interest was piqued by whatever Paul was say. Who, who is this? This was foreign to them. And uh, so, verse 19, they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. Wow, interesting opportunity. That now they say, they actually give him a forum, if you will. They give a a platform and ask him, hey, Tell us more about what you're saying. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers uh, which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. That's interesting, isn't it? What defines a society? You know, what, what characterizes the people of a city? What, what would characterize the people of Clark County? What would characterize Americans? Okay. Now that would be, it'd be kind of hard, I know, because you're talking about hundreds of millions of people. Um, you know, but we, we might we might categorize certain generations, right? Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z. Um, what's the There's millennials, but um, after Gen Z, I just read this recently. Anybody know what's after Gen Z? I can't remember what they call them. Uh, the newest generation. Anyway, we categorize um, generations a certain certain way. Baby boomers, right? Yeah. Uh, not, not the most recent one, but yes, that was back there. And uh, what's that? <laughs> we will not repeat that for the sake of live no. stream. <laughs> no, somebody said idiots, but where that, uh, anyway, anyway. So they, 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 we identify them different ways, different things. Um, but it says those people here in Athens, uh, they spent their time in just hearing or telling some new thing. It's kind of like there's just the big old gossip train. You know, everybody just love oh 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 uh and there is something when when you have something new to share. Can anybody relate with me on this when you have something new to share that nobody else knows? There's like a sense of power there. Um like it, it just and it attracts attention to you like uh, it, you can tell something to your kids, "Oh, uh, hey, on Saturday we're going to do this." "Oh, hey guys, guys on Saturday we're going to, you know, we got to be the we got to be the megaphone here because I know this stuff that you don't know. Anyway, it's an interesting uh, description of, uh, of Athens here. So they spent their time. They wanted to hear these things. Now, were they eager like the Bereans to learn, to hear, and investigate? I doubt it. Because they were so philosophical and so um, so prone to loving the gossip and wanting a new God and, and thinking through these things, was it that they're the same readiness to hear? Um, I tend to doubt it and you'll, uh, you'll see what the response was here shortly. Um, but I wanted, let's see, it says, then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill. And I said, wait, wait, Mars Hill, why is it Mars Hill? Well, earlier it was called Areopagus. Well, um, according to one source, this hill belonged, according to them, remember, we're in Athens here, okay, the place of many gods. This hill belonged to Ares, or Mars, and was called Mars Hill. So called because as the story went, Part of the mythology. Mars, having slain Halorotheus, son of Neptune, for the attempted violation of his daughter Elsipe, was tried for the murder here before twelve gods as judges. This place was the location where the judges convened who appointed by appointment of Solon, had jurisdiction of capital offenses as willful murder, arson, poisoning, malicious wounding, and breach of established religious usage. <laughs> so anyway, in their, in their usage, this is where this kind of tribunal of the gods had happened. And, uh, and it was connected to Mars, the god Mars, hence it was Mars Hill, okay? Um, and so he, he's standing here now on Mars Hill, and he says, and here's this, uh, this well-known sermon, Ye men of Athens, verse 22, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious, for as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. For all the gods that they had, they had an altar to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Interesting foothold that he found right there to say, you at least recognize, uh, you, you know a little bit of what you don't know, and you recognize that maybe there's a God out there that you don't know, and that's the one I'm gonna tell you about, okay? Nice entrance, Paul, okay? Uh, God that made the world and all things therein, so he immediately uh, presents him as the creator God, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, okay, so he is sovereign above all these things, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life And breath and all things. Can you see him setting up the supremacy of, if you will, the unknown God? He's the creator. He's outside of being boxed in by a temple, (laughs) pantheon, idols, you know, it doesn't need men's hands. He doesn't need anything. In fact, he gives you life and breath and all things. Um, Verse 26 and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. And you see, that's the answer to racism, by the way, right? Um, That there aren't different races. There's the human race, okay? That we're all made of one blood. There's different skin colors, but what does that matter? That's just the color of our skin. You know, that would be like, uh, you know, segregating people over the color of their eyes, right? Or... um, Or how long their fingernails were. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, but, but he says he's made of one blood, all nations of men, for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Now, I have to imagine that if you have an idea of Greek gods, that concept is a little bit interesting, and it really sets up the supremacy and the all-encompassing nature, you know, that that within God, essentially, nothing is outside of his purview and his creation and things like, you understand what I'm saying? That uh, here you've got this this God of fire over here and this God of tempest over here and the God of crops over here, and you sort of appeal to them as a, as a, an outside agent to maybe work on your behalf, but then to realize that this one true God, we're all like operating inside of him. For in him, we live and move and have our being. We, we can't escape him. He's always there. He's always present. And, um, and so he says, um, verse 28, for in him, we live and move and have our being as certain of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. So he attacks the concept of a an idol. And the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but uh, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, to change their mind, because he hath appointed a day in which. Uh, in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained so far he 's got their attention, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead, and when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said we 'll we'll hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them. well, what was the response? Some said. <laughs> Okay, Okay. now, I've, I've heard enough. That's enough. Resurrection, you get, no, that's too far. I can't, I can't take you anymore. I'm done. Others were like, hmm, let me stew on that, and we'll, we'll hear you again sometime. Yeah, that was a good part one there, Paul, or whatever. And, uh, but notice what it says, verse 33. So Paul departed from among them, howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed among, uh, among the which was Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with him. Now, it's interesting. Why does Luke mention these two? Um, the first one makes more sense because if you understand um, Areopagus and kind of what it was to them as a culture, um, the fact that Dionysius was an Areopagite, if I could put it this way, he was essentially an official. He was, um, he was a judge, if you will. So it's like, it would be like, in some ways, arguing the case for God before, um, maybe this is too much, but before the Supreme Court and a mass of people. Okay? And you walk away, and people scoff. Ah, I can't hear the resurrection. Oh, we'll hear you again later. Uh, and after the whole debate, one of the Supreme Court justices walks up and says, I believe that. We go, whoa! Amen. Yes, one of the people that's the you know the kind of the elite, the thinking among the, the especially the, the um, esteemed among the people, clave to Paul. I think that's interesting. Who is Damaris? I don't know. Uh, why is she named and the others aren't named? Uh, I don't know. I think the general lesson can be there uh, simply to say that sometimes in in Christianity and in Christian history and in life, some people are named and some people aren't. You know what I mean? Uh, sometimes you maybe you wish you were named. Sometimes maybe you wish you weren't named. <laughs> You're like, I don't want the spotlight. I just wanna. I just wanna serve. I just wanna do my thing. Um, for some reason, Luke mentions Damaris and uh, and others with him. Okay, there was others with them that clave unto Paul. Um, and then it says, after these things, for chapter 18. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth. Now, my pastors made the uh, statement before that. Um, there wasn't a church there. We don't necessarily, that we know there was believers. Was a church set up? It doesn't really say specifically that there was. He didn't write, he didn't write later to a church in Athens. He wrote to a church in uh, Thessalonica and in Philippi and in Corinth and in Ephesus, but he didn't write to a church in, in Athens. Um, I don't know, does that mean that there wasn't a church there? What, what happened to those believers? We don't, uh, we don 't know at this point, but we move into chapter number uh, eighteen, and uh, he goes from here. He says, after these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth, came to Corinth and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. And notice the cultural uh, that that Luke uh, interjects this uh, this historical account here because that. Claudius had commanded that all Jews depart from Rome. Well, that's interesting. So these people had, had, had lived in Italy, essentially in Rome, apparently, but because of an edict that they had to flee Rome, here they are in Corinth. Um, interesting. And he uh, came unto them, and because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought, for by their occupation they were tent makers. So there we learned that Paul somehow had picked up the craft of tent making. Okay, imagine that was pretty ardu- pretty uh, tedious work. And uh, because he was of the same craft as Aquila and Priscilla, he uh, he stuck with them for a while. And verse four, now in Corinth, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. That was like maybe the fourth time we've seen this, that again, this is his manner. He goes to the synagogue, he persuades the Jews and the Greeks. And when, and by the way, how does he, again, just, Kind of. Hopefully I'm not beating a dead horse here, but how do you persuade somebody? I know you get up, and you sweat, and you spit, and you yell, and you scream, and you tell people, you just tell people, this is the truth because I said so. And then you persuade them, right? Well, you will persuade a few, but I hate to tell you that you didn't persuade them too much. And it's a kind of follower that is um, it's immature at best. Okay, but if you persuade them because you reasoned with them, not necessarily by raising your voice or screaming or or um, or using Christian expletives, or because you on the on the on the foundation of your personality uh, and your position you said it was right, but you actually went to the source of authority and you said, "Now look, this is what it says. This is why it's true. This is who God is. This is what He said." and you appeal to that authority, and you persuade people that way, well, you've anchored them right to, the, right to the stone itself. You've said, this is the authority, and now they stand on the authority. So, And I know Paul did that, Okay, that Paul persuaded people by using the truth, and by appealing to the scriptures, and by getting them to reason, to say, look, think, God gave you a brain, and we take this thing that we know about God over here, that he's already revealed to us, from generations past and now he's revealed it in somebody that he proved in multiplied ways was the fulfillment of this prophecy God has done it okay so he's using their reason and and the scriptures and the truth Um, verse uh, 5 and when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia remember he had sent for them Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ Okay, we, we put them together all the time well yeah duh But what that means is to the Jewish person, the person Jesus, who had just lately lived, was the Messiah who has been prophesied for hundreds of years. That's what he's saying, okay? That Jesus was Christ. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and said unto them, your blood be upon your own heads, I am clean from henceforth, I will go unto the Gentiles. Well, this is interesting. He, he shakes his raiment. What does that mean? Hold your place here and go back to Nehemiah five. Nehemiah five may be speaking to a similar um, a similar uh, custom, if you will. Nehemiah chapter number five. Now, of course, in Nehemiah, we're talking well before. We're talking post captivity. The uh, Israelites have come out of Babylon, um, have you know begun to have rebuilt the temple. Now the walls are crumbled. Nehemiah is coming to help them build the walls. So this is long before where Paul's at. But uh, Nehemiah chapter five and uh, verse. um, Let's let's go back to let's say um, verse nine. Okay. Also, I said, it is not good that you do. Ought ye not to walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the heathen, our enemies? I likewise, and my brethren and my servants might exact of them money and corn. I pray you, let us leave off this usury. Remember, you weren't allowed to uh, uh, charge usury to a fellow Jewish person, uh, to a, a Hebrew brother. "'Restore, I pray you, to them, even this day, "'their lands, their vineyards, their oliveyards, "'and their houses, also the hundredth part of the money "'and of the corn, the wine, and the oil "'that ye exact of them. "'You're treating your brothers wrong, "'and he's rebuking them for that. "'Then said they, we will restore them "'and will require nothing of them. "'So will we do as thou sayest. "'Then I called the priests and took an oath of them "'that they should do according to this promise.'" They promised, okay, we'll mend our ways, and we basically made it official. Verse thirteen. Also, I shook my lap and said, "So God shake out every man from his house and from his labor that, perform, that performeth not this promise. Even thus be he shaken out and emptied." And all the congregation said, "Amen," and praised the Lord. So Nehemiah gives this sign: that you made this promise, you have this obligation. <laughs> He shakes the lap and says, may you be shaken out, essentially, if you violate this promise. You see? Now, when Paul, says, when, when, when Paul is persuading them and he's reasoning with them out of the scriptures, and finally they, they, they get so desperate, and people do this, uh, they're, they're um, what's the word he uses in the text? Um, let me find it before I go on. They oppose themselves. (laughs) They oppose themselves and blaspheme. I mean, they start, if you will, you know, calling names and deriding people and making arguments that oppose what they even said. They're not even making sense anymore because they're just trying to—they're just trying to win the argument. They're opposing themselves. They're calling names. They're—they're—they're using derision. And what does he say? He shakes out the lap, kind of. You've you've violated your obligation, okay. You have you um um you know you have an obligation to hear and to learn, or maybe he's saying uh, I had an obligation and I fulfilled it, but I'm done, okay. I'm free of my obligation. Somehow that shaking of the lap or the shaking um. That idea of casting you off. Um, I thought of a modern illustration of, um, you know, pounding dust off yourself. Last, uh, the last week, I've um, sanded down a couple oak doors in our house, right? And it just makes all kinds, of, it's not like it's flying all around, but it makes all kinds of dust. And I'm leaning up, you know, I'm leaning real close, and so right here on my coat, I get a lot of dust. Right on my hands, I'd be trying to do something with my phone, and I'd pull out my phone, and I'd open it. And I'd get dust on this, and I'd get dust on the screen. Oh, my goodness. There's just dust all over. Well, when I, was, when I was done, I would stop at a certain point, and I'd just go, puff, puff, puff. and I mean, I, would, I could do that 15, 20 times, probably, and the dust would just keep coming. I finally took my, my gloves off, and I walked over to the corner of the house and went, whap, whap, whap. And I was hitting them against the house, knocking all the dust off, right? What am I doing? Saying, I'm rid of that. I'm done with that. I'm casting it off, if you will. Uh, when, you, when, you, when you, before you step in the car, right, you, uh, it's, it's wintertime. You slosh through the, through the snow. You get in your car. You go, and you put your leg in, right? And you go, and you hit your other foot, and then you close the door. Because you don't want all that sluck, you know, brought in sluck. And I don't know if that's in the dictionary or not, but there's a new word for you. All that sluck in your, uh, in your car. So you knock it off, um, that seems to have that um, significance doesn 't it when paul 's like shaking his garment is that uh, is that uh, uh, you know an apostolic thing that they suddenly they felt this force of uh, of evil no it 's just saying i 'm done i 've done my duty just a second i'll get to you i 've done my duty and i 'm casting if, essentially i 'm casting you off as an obligation at this point. I'm moving on to the Gentiles. Yes, Jerry. Right. And I thought that was kind of an indication. I don't even want your dust hanging to my shoes. Hmm. And that's a good question. And that, Yes, the, the, uh, the, as the disciples shook the dust off of their sandals when they would leave a city if they had rejected the disciples. I think it is a similar thing. Uh, whatever the exact um, picture is, there's obviously, a, if you will, a casting off, a leaving behind. And that's what he's doing. I, I'll, I'll preach to you for so long. I'll reason to you for so long. And if you're just going to... If you're if you're blatantly going to reject to the point where you oppose yourself and you blaspheme, you do not want to hear. I'm going to move to to another field, and that's the field of the Gentiles here. Um, Persephone, did you have your hand up? Good. Good. And so Persephone mentions that Pilate washed his hands, remember, before the crucifixion. What was an emblematic saying, I'm clean of this. This is your fault. It's on you. That's exactly uh, what it was. Now, was it on Pilate? Yeah. But I mean, uh, in in some ways. But but emblematically, he was saying, it's on you now. And they're like, yeah, let it be on us and on our kids. Yeah, we'll take it. We'll take it. Um, Yeah, good point. I appreciate that. Now look at, um, as we get down in the text a little further, he says, um, and he departed, th-, so he said, I will go unto the Gentiles. And he departed thence and entered into a certain man's house named Justice, one that worshiped God, whose house joined hard to the synagogue. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision, Be not afraid, but speak and hold not thy peace. Now, um, in, in the Greek, there's two different ways to give, um, if you will, kind of a negative, uh, maybe a command like this. One can be, don't start. And the other one is, stop doing. Do you see the difference? You tell your kids, don't even think about it. <laughs> you haven't started yet, and I'm giving you the warning, don't. The other one is, you walk in and they're doing something they shouldn't be doing, you're like, Stop. Okay, the what, what, uh, what the Lord is saying to Paul here is actually the construction that means something is going on that needs to stop. In other words, Paul, stop fearing. Stop fearing. What does that tell you? Paul had been fearing. Okay, Paul had been fearing. Um, what does he say? To, hold your place here and look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. When he wrote back to this very church, Okay, this is the city we're talking about. In 1 Corinthians, in chapter number 2, Paul himself describes his state, if you will, when he was with him. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear, and in much trembling. Even Paul himself says, when I was with you, I was afraid. Well, honestly, I'm not taking the tack of, oh, ha-ha, Paul, you were afraid. No, to say, isn't that comforting? You sort, of see, you sort of see Paul as the poster child of Christianity. Be like, oh, yeah, man, Paul, you know, he knew the right thing to say. He was bold and he'd walk in. He would just, uh, he would persuade people from the scriptures. And certainly he's an example and a model. But isn't it a little comforting to know that even Paul said, I was scared or I, or, um, I feared. Well, what did he fear? Uh, well, it doesn't tell us exactly. Did he fear that maybe the rabble rousers would come from, you know, Thessalonica and Berea and stir up things again? He might have, did, he, did he? Did he fear? Um, uh, did he fear physical pain? Did he fear? You know, there, there's a number of things that he he could have feared. Did he fear that for all of his labor he would see no fruit? Okay. At one point, remember God saying, "Paul, I have much people in this city." Okay, and Paul wouldn't have known that necessarily, but as in some ways it says he was. I, I I was with you in fear and much trembling. Have you ever been there? I have. <laughs> I love it. You know, where you like uncontrollably, whether it's your knees or your jaw or whatever shakes, you're with much trembling. Why? Because there's an anxiety there. There's a there's a f- fear, and uh, and and so it tells us honestly that uh, that that was that was where it was. Um, Then spake the Lord, verse 9, then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision, be not afraid, stop fearing, but speak and hold not thy peace for I am with thee and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee for I have much people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Now, I don't know that we can peg exactly the timeline, meaning uh, the exact amount of time in every city. It seems that some were rather short. Maybe three weeks he reasoned with them, and then a crowd rose up, and he had to flee. But in this case, God gives him the promise that says, Paul, nobody's going to hurt you here. I have much people in this city, so go out and speak boldly. And he does, and he stays for a year and a half, 18 months he is there, and uh and then uh, it says teaching the word of God among them. And when Gallio was the deputy of Achaia, the Jews made insurrection with one accord against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat saying, this fellow persuadeth men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was now about to open his mouth, Galio said unto the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or wicked lewdness, O ye Jews, reason would that I should bear with you. But if it be a question of words and names and of your law, look ye to it. For I will be no judge of such matters. And he drave them from the judgment seat. Paul didn't even have to defend himself. Then all the Greek took Sosthenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. And Galio cared for none of those things. Very interesting. Uh, you're like, oh no, Lord. I thought you said nobody was going to set on me to hurt me. They're taking me before the judgment seat. And they're like, this man is guilty and needs to be judged. And Paul's like, and before he can say anything, uh, Gallio's like, look, guys, this is, this is in your own jurisdiction. Don't bother me with this. If it were something I should deal with, I would. But get, just get out of here. Get out of here. And people get mad, and they beat the ruler of the synagogue right there in front of the judgment seat. And Gallio's like, I'm done with this. Wow. Uh, Paul didn't get hurt there, did he? But we're going to have to pick up there. Next week, Lord willing, as we finish up these.